Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin this week's episode. We here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast have several initiatives in store for you in 2019, as you will learn more about later in this episode. One is that we are going to begin setting aside a little time at different points in the show to promote various goods or services or even events. It could be a military aviation-themed book or an upcoming air show in your area, for example. Whatever it is, in the background you will hear this jingle provided by our highly talented musician, Jaime Lopez. So if you want to skip ahead until the music stops, no worries. But as I said way back on episode zero, we promise not to promote anything we don't think you'd be interested in hearing about. Only cool stuff related to military aviation. So, now you know. Okay, on with the show. Throughout my career as a Navy pilot, and even more so in this past year since launching the show, I've often been asked whether I've ever seen anything while flying that I could not identify. You know, spaceships or little green men or the like. No, I have not, but I know someone who has. Someone many of you will recognize, and he joins us to tell his story this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I mean, this thing moved through the atmosphere like there was no constraints on it. It just did whatever it wanted to do. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Well, Happy New Year's Fighter Pilot Podcast friends. And welcome to episode 35. We're talking UFOs, and we will get to our interview with retired U.S. Navy Commander Dave Fraver in a few minutes. Hope you all enjoyed your relaxing holidays and that 2019 is off to a fantastic start. That has certainly been the case here in the Aiello and Sinclair households. In fact, it's been difficult to align our schedules, so it's just me this week. Hopefully we'll get sunshine back for episode 36. Well, we received much positive feedback following our last episode with our spouses called The Home Front, so we thank you for that, and I know the ladies appreciated hearing from all of you. If you're wondering why this episode is airing on the second instead of the first as usual, then you may have missed our bonus episode released December 31st with my good friend Robert Kibbe of The Muscle Car Place. Rob and I took a look back at how far the show has come in our first year since launching a year ago now, January 1st. 2018. And let me tell you, it's been quite a journey. Many of you have been there for most or all of it. Rob and I also discussed what's in store for 2019, which includes a few initiatives, such as the opening promotion you just heard, episode series ideas, as we've talked about before with different aircraft, and a new release schedule, which is the 2nd, 12th, and 22nd, instead of the 1st, 11th, and 21st. We didn't post the bonus episode on our website or YouTube, so to find it, you'll need to check out your favorite podcast player or our Patreon page. Now, speaking of Patreon, we have several new Patreon division leads to announce. Phil Brewer, Michael Maddox, William Loomis, and Matt Klein. And also, we have a new Patreon strike lead, Kevin Miller. Now, you may have heard of him. We have featured his naval aviation-themed novels here on the show before, and he was a guest on our episode called After the Cockpit, 
and a Facebook Live session as well. And he's generously donated books and some Instagram pictures that we use. So thanks for your generosity, Hoser. And to all of you new patrons, thank you and enjoy the exclusive content you will get only on Patreon. Now, this week's episode interview is a little longer than normal, but we've been remiss at answering listener questions lately, so we'll see if we can squeeze in a few here. The first is from Jordan McVeigh. He's a Patreon division lead, and he says, How did simulators work when you were in basic training in the early 90s? Did they have early 3D graphics or displays, or was it all instrument flying? How useful was flying in those more, quote, primitive simulators? Well, Jordan, my first three aircraft, as you know, if you've listened to the show, were the T-34, T-2, and TA-4J. And all three of those simulators were instrument only. They had no visuals. First time I had visuals was in the FA-18. Now, curiously, only the T-2 out of those original three had motion. The other two were static. Now, how useful were flying these simulators? Very useful, and I'll tell you why. Number one, you could jump in when the simulator wasn't being used and look around and get used to the cockpit and where switches and gauges and dials were. And number two, you could learn basic procedures. And number three, you could learn what's called an instrument scan, meaning when you're flying on the instruments and you look from the primary attitude reference indicator, maybe to the vertical speed indicator or your airspeed indicator or your heading, All of that is very useful, and you have to build a scan where you look from one to the other to the other with a certain pattern to be as effective as possible. Great question, Jordan. Next, let's take a phone call. Hey, guys, this is Mark from Brisbane, Australia. Hey, just wanted to ask you guys about math formulas that you use while in the cockpit. What type of math do you keep in your head, or do you have pen and paper calculator? And uh, what do you do on a mission with those math calculations? Uh, Keep up the good work, guys. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for the phone call, Mark. Always good to hear from you blokes down under. In fact, our web designer and graphic guy, Yannick Krauss, is from down under. So we have a special place in our heart for you guys. Well, the two most used math formula that we have in the aircraft are the fuel ladder calculations and glide slope altitude backup calculations. Now, the math for the fuel ladder is pretty basic, and I think we've talked about it before. Essentially, when you look down at the gauges in an F-18, there's two, one for each engine, and they tell you the fuel flow in pounds per hour times 100. So if I look down and see a 30 on the left and a 30 on the right, then that's 3,000 pounds per hour on each engine, and that's 6,000 pounds per hour, and that equates to about 100 pounds per minute. So if I know I'm holding somewhere and I need to manage my fuel and I have to leave, let's say, Marshall at night in 12 minutes, well, then whatever my state is now, let's call it 6.2. In 12 minutes, I'll burn 1,200 pounds, so I'll be leaving with about a 5.0. And, of course, the burn rate changes with your left-hand movement. goes up when you advance the throttle and goes back when you retard it. And so that's just a calculation we do often. And on our kneeboard card, we don't use calculators, but we do have blocks and we put in what we expect the fuel to be every 15 minutes. And then we back it up with updates as we go. And then we can also project ahead using the formula we just talked about. Now, another one is the backup on glide slope at night. Again, let's say at the carrier. We know that one degree equals 100 feet at a mile. And we fly a three degree glide slope. So every mile we should be 300 feet higher on that three degree slope. So if we're coming in, which we do at 1200 feet above the water, well then 1200 divided by three is four. And so we should expect to intercept 
the glide slope at about four nautical miles. And what we do is we'll back ourselves up as we come down the slope so that we know in case the carrier instruments are incorrect or trying to lead us astray, which has happened in the past, not so much recently, but we can back ourselves up. So if we intercept the glide slope from 1,200 feet at four miles, then at three miles, we should be at 900 feet, except don't forget the carrier flight deck itself is about 60 feet up. So we generally look for about 960 at three miles, 660 at two miles, 360 at one mile, etc. And if you want to get fancy at the half mile increments, you can even split the difference between say 660 and 960 and try to figure out where you should be at two and a half miles. There is one more though I just realized. Sometimes when we do stern conversions, which is a type of intercept, and we'll talk more about those in just a second, there are certain things you can do with the radar where it's not really a math formula, but you need to know that at certain distance with a certain offset, you should expect to see a certain target aspect out of your target, and that will tell you if you are set up to do a good rendezvous while they continue in the same direction. And I'm purposely not throwing out any numbers here for a couple reasons. Number one, I just don't remember them. And number two, if people's eyes aren't already crossed from all the math I just threw out, they probably would be if I did do the research and remember what all this was. But someone once told me when I answered a previous question about math that there are some different formulae they use for doing a stern intercept or a stern conversion, where let's say you're heading north and the guy you want to rendezvous with is heading south, well, you end up right on his left or right wing, also heading south, and there's a way to do that by offsetting. So, great question, Mark, and thanks very much. We have another question now from Mark Alexander from Montreal, talking about intercepts. He says, as a Navy fighter pilot, are you trained to do interceptions, or is it only the job of the Air Force fighter pilots? Similarly, are all Air Force pilots trained to do that or only those who join intercept squadrons? Also, is the interception of a civilian aircraft different than the interception of a military aircraft? So Mark Alexander, the term intercept squadron is no longer used. I know it used to be in the 50s and 60s. These days, any fighter pilot is going to be taught and should know how to do an air-to-air intercept, and there are three. Now, we just talked about one, and that is the stern conversion or a rendezvous, and we do that quite often on, let's say, aerial refueling tankers. But there are other intercepts, depending on what you're trying to do. We've talked about some of them before on this show. Some are just pure beyond visual range type missions where all you're trying to do is employ missiles and you may never actually visually see the target. And then there is another one where you are looking to arrive at a merge with the target, having not shot any missiles. And then at that merge, you do what's called a VID or a visual identification. And you say whether it's friendly or hostile or whatever it may be. Now, regarding your question, is there any difference between military and civilian? Yes. Civilian don't shoot back, generally. And so on the military aircraft, depending on what it is, it might or might not be shooting back or turning into you and trying not to be rendezvoused on. But for the most part, any of the larger aircraft or civilian airliner, the biggest problem with that is just that the large size can create a visual illusion of distance and closure. And it's not uncommon to end up arriving on their wing with too much closure and too much speed and you underrun or fly past them. So you have to be careful of that. But the nice thing about that is many military tankers are based on civilian aircraft already. And so if you're used to joining on a tanker, it's not that much different to join on an airliner, let's say. All right, last question from Paul Nitty from Calgary, Canada. He says, when you are training against an aggressor squadron, are the aggressors somehow modified to show up as a, quote, foe? 
or is the IFF system ignored? Also, have you guys ever made it out to our local exercise maple flag? Yes, Paul, the IFF, or Identification Friend or Foe, modes 1 through 4 are used in training to signify whether an opposition player is alive or dead, friendly or not, and in some cases what type of threat it is, for example, a MiG-29 or an SU-27. And so we do have that as part of our training rules, and it is part of the adversary's professionalism to make sure he or she is modifying the IFF as required, depending on what phase of flight they're in. And yes, that is quite common. Now, personally, no, I never made it to a Maple Flag. My very first squadron, VFA-86, attended in 1997, just before I arrived. But unfortunately, no, Paul, I never had a chance to participate in a Maple Flag up in Canada. Great questions, all of you. Thanks. And everyone, keep your questions coming. We'll try to continue working through them the best we can in upcoming episodes. All right, let's get then to our interview with Commander Dave Fravor. Now, you will hear just a little bit of microphone jostling at times. I did my best to edit it out, but we were sitting in his basement holding our microphones, and so inevitably, sometimes you move and create a slight noise. So apologize for that, but I know you'll still enjoy the interview, so let's get straight to it on UFOs. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in southern New Hampshire, and we are at the residence of retired United States Navy Commander David Fravor. Sex, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sir. Hi. Thanks, Jello. It's good to be here. Well, it's been a long time. It's good to see you well. It has. Yeah. yeah it's been a long time. You're looking good. Thanks. I'm feeling good, Billy Ray. You know... First off, I never called you Sex anyway because I was junior to you. I used to call you Skipper, and Sex just has this kind of weird feeling. And we'll get to the call sign thing at the end, but <laughs> I'm going to call you Skipper if that's okay. No, that's fine. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for having me in your lovely home. And we are here today to talk about an experience you had back in 2004 and ever since. But we always begin here on the show with a little background on our guests. So if you could, please tell us where you're from, where you went to school, a little bit about your career and what you're doing now. Yeah, my name is David Fravor, obviously, and uh, I hail from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, actually, right on the Michigan state line, about 40 minutes south of Detroit, Michigan. Okay. And I uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps at 17 years old. To the chagrin of my parents, they weren't real happy about it. My dad was definitely not happy about it. Uh, I got recommended uh, while I was in the Marine Corps to go to the Naval Academy prep school. Uh, from there, I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, my first uh, plebe cruise, I was on the USS Nimitz in 1985, uh, watching planes land and take off on board the carrier. And I thought, I really want to do that. <laughs> uh, so... Being a Marine, we were guaranteed the ability to go into the Marine Corps. We didn't have to wait till service selection. Okay. Uh, because there's a limited uh, percentage of the graduating class. Uh, I actually waived that because I thought, hey, I think the best opportunity for everything was to fly for the Navy. Um, and, and it was a it was a, it was a very tough decision, um, but I ended up selecting uh, the Navy. Uh, from there, I went to Jets, went to Kingsville, got winged uh, in 1990, actually two years to the day I graduated the academy. Uh, long story, but uh, I ended up getting A6s. I had originally had S3 orders. Uh, I got my orders changed to A6s. I went up to Whidbey Island. I flew A6s for about uh, three years total. From there, uh, I got selected uh, to go to F18s. So I went down to Lemoore and flew F18s uh, through multiple tours until t 2003. I selected and went to, uh, or 2002, sorry, went to Super Hornets. 
uh, stayed there flying. And then in 2003, I screened and went to VFA 41 for my XOCO tour and then mm-hmm. retired out of Lemoore after 18 years of flying commission uh, to uh, go into the corporate world. Okay. And that's what you're doing now is? I am. I'm a, I consult uh, in the corporate world. Okay. Now, for the listeners who are hearing you but not seeing you, they might wonder where they've heard you before. And that is on the 2005 deployment that you and I had the pleasure to share together. You were one of many stars on the PBS Carrier special, and you make (laughs) quite a few appearances. So uh, I don't know if any of that has ever uh, come back to, not to haunt you, but do you you get people asking you about that? Because I do. I only had one short speaking part, and I have people asking me all the time. I have had, you know, it's funny when it came out, I got told by the director I was doing a proof of the series before it came out. They had they had edited it all and said, "Hey, we want you to look at this." And and I got the I walked into this place down in Hollywood and and everyone knew my name and I had no idea who these people were. And I'm <laughs> like, it was to me, it's very strange. It's yeah. not how I grew up. And she said, "Well, no, no, you're going to get recognized." I said, "Okay." So I didn't think anything of it. So the the series came out in 2008, and I had just started working uh, down in San Diego, and I was in the commissary in Miramar. <laughs> when that thing had come out and you can tell people are whispering and they're pointing. And, <laughs> and so I rapidly got my cart and got out of there. You're like a celebrity. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to deal with it. It's, it yeah. comes and goes. As a matter of fact, I was just going to, uh, uh, one of my best buds, his son who lived with me, got married. Um, and, uh, we were on the airplane and we were flying into Norfolk and, uh, the air show was that weekend. And I was asking a guy, he was from Ohio and I'm like, Oh yeah, great. What are you doing? He goes, Oh, we're here for the air show. And when he got all done, he looked at me and goes, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. He goes, are you the guy from that carrier show? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, which my wife just rolls her eyes and uh-huh. turns her back. My kids are the same way. But, yeah, it was it, – it still has not died, although I wished it would, but it hasn't. Yeah, well, I don't know about you, Skipper, but my wife <laughs> rolls her eyes at me quite often. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that just comes with the territory for us. But, all right, so we were – you did the 2003 deployment as well on Nimitz, right? Yeah, I joined okay. halfway through the, okay. the 03 deployment and then all the entire 05 okay. deployment. Okay, because I was in 97 for the 03 deployment and then VFA 94 for the 2005 deployment. All right, well, so you made headlines earlier this year for an event that took place back in November of 2004, and that's what we'll spend the bulk of our time speaking about today. But I'm just curious before we talk about the episode – why now? Why suddenly is all of this coming to light? You know, it's interesting you ask. I had uh, I hadn't really done anything, I you know, about it, and it's it's been pretty quiet. It was never secret. I want to point it out because there's a lot of uh, people that think that this was classified. We weren't allowed to talk about it. There mm-hmm. were people on the boat that thought that we signed non disclosures to not discuss this. That never happened. It was it just. It went away, and after, you know, you were out there. Mm-hmm. After about three days, you know, in the Men in Black cartoon and the other airplane comic of the far side, when those went away, you know, I had a squadron run, we all had to fly, That's we were right. in the middle of workup, so it just kind of faded away. I had got a call from the other pilot, and they said, hey, have you been talked to about the Tic Tac lately? And I said, no. They said, well, you know, I've been asked to go to the Pentagon like five times. You know, and they said, well, you had, the, you know, the most essay, because I was actually the one that engaged it. And I said, well, just give him my name, and I'll talk to him. So that was Lou Elizondo, who was running the ATIP program at the Pentagon. So he had called me up, said, hey, we're going to come up and talk to you. I said, great, no problem. 
And um, I didn't think much of it. I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you what you got. So about, um, I don't know, probably a month later, uh, I had got in information on the To the Stars that was coming out with Tom DeLong, and I'm watching this clip that a guy had sent me and Lou's on it. So I call Lou. I go, what's going on? He goes, I left the Pentagon. I said, well, he goes, hey, we're, we'll be there like this weekend to talk to you. I said, okay. So they came up here and talked to me about the whole incident, and he told me what was going on, and, and he actually explained why he had left the Pentagon. He was a little bit frustrated um, with, you know, basically the bureaucracy that he was having to deal with and, mm-hmm. and what he thought was very important. So he called me up about a month later and said, hey, we want to do this article with the New York Times. Will you do it? And I said, no. It's typical. I said, I actually said, no, I'm not doing that. And he said, no, no, seriously, dude, we really need you to do this. I said, why do you need me to do this? He said, because we've gotten approval to announce that this program existed inside the U.S. government. And he says, and you're the one piece that will add credibility, you know, because of our background of mm-hmm. what we do. That it gets it gets harder to discredit us for when we see something like that. And I said, oh, all right. And I was actually in D.C. for work. So I met him and um, Helene Cooper and Leslie Keene at... Uh, a restaurant and they just started asking a question and when you first start telling the story you know you, there's kind of like this jaw dropping from the people you're telling it to which I was laughing because the only people that really knew the story because my family didn't really know it it was all my buds that would mm-hmm. go you know we'd be out you know having a beer or two and they'd say hey Dave what's the coolest thing you ever saw flying and then I would say well I, I chased this UFO and they'd be like you did what and I'd say no seriously we we you know, and I give the whole story, and, and, and they're all like, you know, people that know me know I'm not totally crazy. And they would just go, you're joking. I go, no, I'm dead serious. I, yeah. You know, and the cool thing is there was four of us, you know, because it was us, you know. And then Cheeks, Kurth, who was the CEO of the Marine Squadron, he was actually the red air for the event. And they had they talked to him before we even, they talked to us because he mm-hmm. was the first one off the deck. Um, he just didn't, you know, Charlie's didn't have the gas to go play around a little extra like we did. Right. So, um so because of that, you know, the New York Times article hit, what was it, December 17th the last year, and then then your world explodes. Oh, and I can I, imagine. I completely underestimated. I got told, hey, look, this is the New York Times. And I said, you know, because of Carrier, I'm like, hey, you know, I, you know, I kind of had that 15 minutes of fame. I really don't want that 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I want to just crawl into my little sector of the world and sure. go away. And they said, no, no, this is going to be a big deal. I'm like, yeah, no, no big deal. Well... The article hit on it hit the internet. This is a funny story. It hit the internet on Saturday at two o'clock. So uh, I don't know if you know uh, uh, Jeter. Uh, he was a Japan guy with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked at Check Six with me. He it literally it hit, and he, would get, he I get a phone call right away. Dude, I'm sitting down to eat my lunch, and and I see your ugly mug on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> what would you expect from a, for a fellow aviator? I, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I would yeah, expect. So exactly. I told him, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I was asked by the guy at the Pentagon to do this. And, um, and he said, holy cow. So the next day, I'm not thinking anything. My son-in-law was here visiting, and we were taking him to the airport Sunday morning when the paper hit. And uh, we're literally getting ready to leave the house, and my phone rings, and it's a number that I don't know. It's from Jersey. Of course, my wife goes, oh, answer it. She goes, I want to see who it is. I'm like, okay, so I answer the call. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, it ends up being Good Morning America, which was followed by multiple CNN, which was Fox News, which was the Washington Post, which was the Boston Herald. I mean, I had a guy, literally the Boston Herald guy tracked me down on Sunday and found me in a coffee shop on the north end with my wife and daughter. And yeah, never mind the men in black. It's the journalists that frighten me. They can find you anywhere. It is amazing (laughs) because, you know, I'm not, you know, it's not like I'm publicizing this. I haven't. I've right. actually tried to hide from a lot of people, yeah. and 
they find you. Now, it makes it easy because there's not a lot of David Fravers running around the United States. I won't say how many, but it's very few. And yeah. uh, But I asked the girl, I said, how did you find me? And she said, oh, she goes, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. She goes, we have this database we can go to. Wow. It did work out a little bit. You know, the Today Show, NBC News had called, and then they ended up canceling the interview because it was right when the tax reform came out from President Trump. Okay. And... Uh, but I take my, I'd never been to New York City. My wife has been there a bunch. So I said, I went down there with her and I said, ah, you know, well, let's get a tour. So I called up NBC, the girls that had worked with me. And I said, hey, I'm going to be there. Can I get, I told you guys when I first talked to you that, you know, I want to go see the Today Show and stuff. And they did. They, they We got to a little VIP tour of the Today Show and, and got to go see uh, the Tonight Show, the Jimmy Fallon set. We got to see cool. Saturday Night. So it was really, it, that's the one benefit. Actually, that's like the benefit I got out of this whole thing. I called and said, hey, can we get a private tour? There you and, go. And it worked out. So. Okay. All right. Well, if people are wondering what it is we're talking about that brought you your second 15 minutes of fame, you're up to about a 30 minutes. Maybe I'll give you another 15. This might be 45. <laughs> yeah, thanks, buddy. Anyway, yeah, you're welcome. So it was November 2004. You and I and all of our airwing bubbas were on the USS Nimitz off the coast of Mexico, south of San Diego, and we were doing what we call workups, which are just exercises at sea to prepare ourselves for deployment, which ended up being the 2005 deployment that was chronicled in the PBS Carrier Special. And we are out flying on a beautiful day. We have the USS Princeton cruiser operating with us as an air intercept control provider or air defense uh, commander, I suppose you would call it. And so you launch on a mission and just, if you would, give us a quick summary of what happened that day that then blew up on you earlier this year and caused so much attention from the press. Okay, so uh, 2004, we're, we're in one of the early goes. I think we were actually the first go. We're going to do an air defense exercise. So we're going to we're going to train. Not only we're going to get training because we're going to be the good guys. Uh, the Marines are going to take off. They're going to be the bad guys, and we're going to actually work with the controllers on the Princeton to do the air defense of the carrier battle group. Okay, so it's a two v two out over the ocean. Yep. So we launch. Uh, we join up. Um, we're in uh, obviously VFA 41. We're flying F. So I have a, a Wizzo in in my back seat, and mm-hmm. the other pilot and uh, the other Wizzo are in the other jet. So they join up. We're driving out. Um, you know, we hear a little calm on the radio as we're checking through all, you know, going through strike and getting all checked in. Sure. And uh, all of a sudden, the Princeton comes up and says, uh, Fast Eagle, hey, uh, say your loadout. <laughs> and I, I actually laughed. I said, well, I got a Catam 9, and with a sledgehammer, you can get it off the airplane because you know how they're <laughs> locked on. It's just a big, it's a hollow tube. It's no real motor, but it does have a real seeker head, and it's for training only. Right. And they said, well, we're going to cancel the, the air defense exercise training right now. We have real-world tasking. And we were proceeding about 40 miles south of the carrier. So you were right on. So if you draw, if you look at a map and go from San Diego down to Ensenada, we're kind of working around that area, closer to Ensenada than San Diego. Okay. So uh, we start pressing out, and they give us a vector 270 at about 60 miles. So we start driving out towards the west. I'm the lead, so my wingman, the other airplane, gets on my left-hand side. So they're sitting to the south. So I'll start referencing a clock because it makes it easier to go. So as we start driving out, they're calling, you know, 40 miles, 30 miles, 20 miles, 10 miles. And we're not seeing anything on the radar. We're both clean, which means we see nothing. And all of a sudden, the, the cruiser calls merge plot, which tells us that now the blip that they were looking at and us are in the same resolution cell. So it just looks like one blob. They can't sure. just, they can't break us You're in us the apart. same vertical column of air. That's exactly right. Okay. 
So as we're looking out, you know, you know, we, you know, the heads start coming out because we're looking to see where this thing is at. And as we look down off the right side of the airplane, we see, so we'd be at the six o'clock position of a clock and this object would be in the middle. We look down and what it looks like is there's something like a sea mount under the water because it's a no white caps, beautiful, clear day. And there's just this white water. And if you've seen a seamount, which I know you have, mm-hmm. uh, where the waves come in, they just break over this in the middle of the ocean. And, and it tells you there's probably something under the surface, you know, right. for navigators to stay away. So we kind of see this. And as we're looking, uh, the back seater in the other airplane, Jim Slate Clean, mm-hmm. goes, hey, Skipper, do you? And right about he gets the do you, I'm looking and I see this little white object. It's kind of randomly moving around the disturbance under the water. Now, it's important the disturbance, think of it as what we first thought is, you know, it looked kind of like a 737 size-wise pointing to the east, all right? So it looked like it had kind of wings, you know, like shapes, like a cross mm-hmm. was the way the disturbance was set up. And the little the little white tic-tac is what we refer to it as because that's what it looked like. It was kind of going north-south and then east-west, but it wasn't changing its direction. It was elongated to the north-south, so the longitudinal axis of this thing was pointing north. Okay. So the first thing you think is, oh, it's a helicopter, right? So as we're looking at it, and he goes, hey, do you see what the... And I go, yeah, what the hell is that? And and we're looking. What's your altitude at this point? Uh, we're at about 20,000 feet. Okay. So we're looking down. There's no rotor wash. There's no wings. It literally looks like a tic-tac, and it's just flopping around, right? Mm-hmm. So we're like, that's kind of weird. So as we move around towards about the 9 o'clock position, uh, I decide, hey, I'm going to go check that out. <laughs> of course. So, <laughs> hey... So the other the other pilot says, hey, I'm going to stay up high. I said, that's perfect. Just stay up here. Just mirror us. And I'm going to, I'll go down. So we're, we're having all this comms. And I'm also talking on the intercom mm-hmm. to uh, my backseater. And we're both, you know, kind of like, dude, what is that? And we have no idea. So at about the 9 o'clock position, we start that slow descent. And uh, as we get around to the 12 o'clock, and we're watching this. So this whole evolution is going to take about five minutes because, you know, if we're only doing about 300 knots. We're just sure. kind of saving gas. So we get to about the 12 o'clock position, and the thing, which is had been pointing north-south, basically just turns. So now it kind of the longitudinal axis is kind of pointing to the west, and it starts mirroring us. So we're in a slow descent, clockwise flow, and it's coming up the same way. So it's this thing's been in a hover right over the water with no rotor washing, and then all of a sudden it goes, whoop, and starts climbing. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of looking at it, and we go around, you know, all the way around. So as we approach about that six to eight o'clock position, we actually we're at six and we're, we're, you know, we can watch it. It's coming up below us at about the eight o'clock position. We're at eight o'clock and it's over towards about two o'clock. And there's probably about maybe about 3000 feet of altitude between us. So we're probably at about, you know, somewhere around the 15 ish thousand. And then he's probably around the thing is probably around that 11, 12,000, somewhere around there. So I go, well, best way to fix a two-circle fight. So he's on the opposite side of the circle is cut across the middle of the circle. So I go nose low and cut across the circle and pull lead on it. So I, if I'm at the 8 o'clock, think of it as I point my nose down, and I'm going to cut across the bottom. I'm going to make a big scoop out of the bottom of it. And I'm going kind of over towards 3 o'clock because I want to kind of be over there when he gets there. Mm-hmm. And as we start pulling nose up, the thing rapidly accelerates, like from just this nice, easy kind of mirroring our speed to poof, it's gone as it crosses our nose. It just disappears. So we're like, I go, I asked the other airplane, I go, hey, do you guys see that? And they're like, it's gone. We have no, now keep in mind, they're still above us. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, we have different perspectives of the object and the object, we both see it just take off and disappear. So we're like, <laughs> all right, now I'm pretty weirded out. So I said, hey, well, let's turn around and see what was in the water because we're right there. Mm-hmm. So we basically just turn the airplanes around real quick and there's nothing. There's no disturbance. There's no white water. As far as you can see, there's nothing. Hmm. So we kind of turn, and I'm like, well, you know, look at the clock, but we got to get some training done. And 
I told uh, my backseater, I said, dude, I'm I'm pretty weirded out. I said, that's that's odd. So, And the controller's hearing all this. So I, I remember telling the controller, I said, hey, please tell me that you guys are going to strip the radar tapes. And throughout this, he's been telling us, hey, sir, we've been tracking these things for like two weeks since we got out here. We got out really? in the beginning of the month. Remember, mm-hmm. we got out at the beginning of November. It was a two-month at sea. Remember mm-hmm. us fighting to get home for Thanksgiving? Yeah. So he says... Yeah, we've been tracking these things. They've been coming from basically 80,000 feet or above 80,000 feet, coming straight down and hanging out at like 20,000 feet. And they had been tracking like up to, you know, multiple, you know, I think it was like up to 10. And then they would hang out for a little bit and then they would um, go uh, back up. And this, this this was the first time that they had had manned airplanes airborne when these things showed up, which was, you know, it happens to be us. You know, I don't know if that's lucky or unlucky, but <laughs> my life would have been just fine if this never happened. So I said, well, hey, we're going to go back to the cap which is our hold point for the exercise. And, and meanwhile, the Marines are still hanging out. You know, they're, they're 100 miles south of the ship just kind of doing circles in the sky. Mm-hmm. And the controller comes up. He says, sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is back at your cap point. And we're like, oh, great. So we end up getting to the cap. We don't see it. We do the exercise, and we go back and land. When we, we had landed, we were in the PR shop, and one of our crews was getting ready to launch, and we're telling them this, and they're like, ah. So Chad Underwood, nuts, uh, goes, hey, I'm gonna. He goes. I'm gonna get video of this thing, and that's actually the video that you see. The video is taken by him. We chased it visually. The one regret of the whole side, from my point of view, was that because we never used the helmet cam on the joint helmet because mm-hmm. it was just nauseating to try and watch on a screen. I never had it on. Because had I had it on, you'd probably got tons of video of this thing flying around. Right. You know. And then the other side is is because nothing was done. Uh, and a lot of the stuff is lost. Like we had the tapes, we had the radar tape and the FLIR tape. Uh, the FLIR tape is what you guys have seen, but it's been degraded so many times because it's been copied. Right. But on the high res monitors, it was pretty good. And then the radar tape actually showed, you know, the thing as we hit it with the radar, it started to jam, went to jam, extrapolate, and the, the aspect vector started spinning around because it didn't want to be locked up. And um, and Chad saw the, you know, that's what he had seen. When he did it, and then obviously the video, but all the radar tapes uh, from the Princeton, there's a bunch of stuff that's missing that they can't find. Hmm. Matter of fact, in the archives, I was talking to someone that has access to this stuff, that the the uh, uh, the logbook, someone has taken that page, and sometimes it's just you know the sailor that wants thinks it's cool. Like uh, a buddy of mine saved the airplane from that day, and when this broke sends me a text going, dude, I, I saved this for all these years going, because this was just such a strange event, and sent me the airplane comic. Right. So so that's crazy. So I want to talk about after you landed, uh, what, if anything, happened as far as the debrief. But it might be worth mentioning that the USS Princeton is what we call an Aegis cruiser. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that technology is probably about as good as it gets for detecting and tracking air contacts. Isn't that true? Yeah, it's 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 one of the most sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated radar in the world. Wow! Um, and with that whole system, I mean, uh, I I think it was a Spy One D at that time. Uh, they're they're beyond that. It's just incredible technology that we possess. Right. I mean, they can track incoming ballistic missiles and target them with other missiles, which is a miracle in its own right. But and then also, you said it was occurring for the two weeks prior to that. Was there other than Nuts's encounter after the event of yours? Was there any more that you're aware of in the no. days or weeks that followed? Not that I know of. Now, you know, supposedly uh, the uh, the ships had seen stuff. And then when we came back off that at-sea period, mm-hmm. so we got back, you know, right before Christmas, 
January, I'm, we have Comcast, you know, so I had the Comcast homepage. Mm-hmm. And the, the top video of the year in, for the 2004 year, which came out in January 2005, for Comcast videos, it was the Mexican Air Force tracking like six of these things with a FLIR oh, wow. in the same area. Hmm. So okay. it wasn't just us. I think we were the only ones because there was a lot of people that, you know, hey, we had radar contact on something odd. You know, we saw FLIR video of stuff in the distance. Uh, but I don't think anyone else has actually visually chased the thing like we did. Okay. I mean, that was so, That's why it's unique. So when you landed, as we usually do, you probably run down a Civic Combat. I don't even remember what it's called anymore. But Carrier Intelligence Center. CPIC. Okay, there you go. Thank you. And you're probably talking about it. And I mean, I'm just curious. So the air wing commander or ship's commander, anyone come in and ask you about it or, or no. okay. This is, this is the, this is where it gets. At first we thought, okay, this is, this is kind of odd. We've got something that we have, we can't control. We can't, you know, for the performance of it, you know, anything that hovers like that does not accelerate like, you know, and you've sure. seen, you know, I've seen airplanes doing 1.8 going by me doing the high fast, like at Top Gun where guys are, you know, you just see the cons coming. Mm-hmm. But to, to see something that literally accelerates, because even if you go to Mach 2, think of a rocket that takes off, you watch it, and those things accelerate relatively quick, but you watch them for a significant period of time. This thing literally disappeared in a matter of, you know, less than a second. It was in front of me, and it was gone. So we think, oh, yeah, someone's going to come and talk to us. So we, we had the tapes. My backseater went down because he was junior. He did the debrief in Civic, you know, and you got to tell him, what'd you do? Oh, he chased this thing. We have no idea what it was. And then, of course, they're laughing because they think it's funny. Mm-hmm. And he comes back to the ready room, and, and there's some other stuff that went on. So we're like, okay, maybe someone's going to come. And the next thing you know, the intel guy comes down and says, hey, we want to, we need your tapes. You know, they're, they're going to start this investigation. And they're making it like it's a big deal. Problem was, is it wasn't a big deal because we figured out it was, they thought it was a big funny joke that they would do this. So I remember going down there and I told, I told my, I told Dell, I said, I'll be back, but I'm going to go get those tapes. And I, Dell was your XO? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I went into the, uh, <laughs> I went into Civic and I said, Hey, I need my tapes. And they're, they're just looking at me. I said, I'll tell you what, you got about two minutes to give me those tapes or I'm going to tear this place apart and there's not a damn thing you're going to do about it. And the, the lieutenant that was in there and I said, You can go get your boss if you want because I'll have the same talk with him. And uh, within about 30 seconds, I had the tapes in my hand, and we took those back to the ready room because they're actually our property. Right, and the classified um, equipment. Yeah. So we we copied them, uh, believe it or not, because we use those tapes again. Mm-hmm. So we copied them, and we wrapped them up and and stuffed them in the safe. They were in a they were wrapped in a piece of yellow paper that said 4CO, and they stayed there. We came back from cruise. They were in the ready room safe. Uh, and then somehow they disappeared. No one knows where they went. Um, and I don't know if it was, you know, there's been several COs since then, you know, probably about eight different COs. So no one knows where they went. You know how it is when you go to and from cruise. Someone right. goes, what are these? Hey, they look like blank eight mil tapes. Hey, we'll just use them because, you know, uh, okay. it's, it's, so a, might have taped them. it's consumable. So no yeah. one knows where those tapes actually hmm. went. Did you end up with a copy of anything? I did not. Yeah. Actually, the guy that was in my back seat had sent me, I was working... I had retired, and about 2008, he had sent me a link to a website, which I, it's, it's, you know, I, I would say not suitable for work. But he sent it to me, and it was on there. He, and it was, hey, Skipper, does this look familiar? And I'm like, holy shit, that's the FLIR video that we had taken. Mm-hmm. And then it ended up on YouTube, and it was on YouTube for quite some time, and then it disappeared. So you go, well, how, how did people actually find out about this? Because it was never reported. Well, what had happened is I was working, and, and I had met some people, and then and Cheeks had called me at the same time and says, hey, 
we're doing some stuff and we have a customer that likes to investigate stuff like this. Can we do it? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had had another friend that I had talked to and said, hey, because of the phone call that was prompted by Cheeks, I was talking to her and I said, hey, I had this incident. You know, is there anything you can find out? She said, oh, let me see. Didn't think anything of it. And about a month later, I had got a call from a guy and said, hey, we're going to we're going to investigate this thing. So they they actually did. Uh, there was a report that just got released uh, that Harry Reid released, the former senator from Nevada. Mm-hmm. Which was actually, I, I like to call it the unofficial official report because it wasn't an official report. It was just done to be, to try and capture some of this. To, to I look at it as more as exercising the system. I don't know what the whole purpose was. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did it, and that became the unofficial official report. And it's, it's actually pretty well done. There are a few inaccuracies in it because, you know, it's a, it's a lot of people's story. And it's at the time, it was five years after the event. So people start forgetting stuff. Sure. Um, and I'm not saying that my recall is perfect, but I used to have pretty pretty good recall, uh, just from training and yeah. you know teaching BFM for so long. Right. And, uh, so you know the report came out, and uh, and I think that's what helped prompt a bunch of the stuff. And then and then since last year when the article hit, you know that they're trying to prove that this stuff is out there, uh, it just went completely out of control. So you said a moment ago, FLIR video. Did you mean from Nuts, the second wave, or did you guys get FLIR no, video? No, we, we did not get any FLIR video. Okay. Uh, Nuts went out and took it. Gotcha. And he did, when he, if you look at the video, when he watches, because there's all kinds of naysayers out there, oh, it's a blemish on the array. Right. He goes between multiple sensor modes. He's in EOIR, which is TV, black and white TV, and then he uses IR, which, which is, is the infrared. Right, or heat. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he intentionally goes all through the zoom lenses, narrow, medium, wide, you know, and you see that happen. You know, he does an auto track on it, which is the bars on the side, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it breaks and goes zooming off to the other side. So there's just uh, – uh, for us, it's like, you know, we, we saw it. When he brought the video back, we're like, oh, that's it. I mean, and when you, you – you know, we could see the high res because it was the original tape right off the, the airplane, which is digitally pulled from the back. It's not like through cameras or anything like right. that. So. Mm-hmm. For all the internet experts out there, you know, don't talk about what you really don't know. Just because you heard it from a friend's cousin's friend's sister at college, roommate, you know, doesn't make it real. That's right. So, Skipper, I ended up flying most of my 25 years, accrued 3,800 flight hours. I know many people with similar amount of hours. You probably have, what, several thousand? Yeah, 3,800. 3,800. And apart from November 14th, 2004, I'm sure you would say the same thing I have. And people have asked me since I began this show, I've never seen anything in the air that I could not identify. What do you feel based on your experience and having spoken to the other people that were there that day? What did you see? We have no idea what it was. You know, there's, it was unidentifiable. Yeah, we have no, there's, there's nothing. I, I had seen nothing in 18 years. And at the point it was 16 years of flying. So mm-hmm. I was at about 3,600 hours. And I never got out of the cockpit, as you know. I, I didn't go to the Pentagon or anything like that. We saw it, and literally we're all looking at each other, and I'm talking to the guy in my back seat, and I'm just like, dude, I have I have no idea what that was. And, and I had, I'd been around the block, so it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, I wasn't the new person, like, right out of the, the rag that just got in the jet and went, oh, my God, I saw something. And they're right. like, no, nah, it was a weather balloon. You know, because we would see people do that, you know, and you're like when we would go and practice bombing down by like Yuma mm-hmm. and you'd be on the downwind away from the target. They have the balloons, the border balloons yep. that are in the restricted and people would see it and go, hey, you got a contact. And you got to tell them, no, that's actually just a balloon. It's on a tether. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. It's going to yeah. be here all day long. So stuff like that. Sure. But to see something that could go from a hover with no rotor wash, no wings, no discernible propulsion, and you can see that on the IR, there's no plume coming out of it. It's just sitting there in space. And then to back that up with the coverage of what the radar was seeing, 
we don't have, at least in modern reactive propulsion, you know, suckers and blowers, jet engines, we don't have the ability to react that quick and counter drag. I mean, this thing moved through the atmosphere like it just, like it, there was no constraints on it. It just did whatever it wanted to do. So that was the biggest uh, deal, which, which is funny because the other pilot had a different, you know, the, the other pilot was relatively new. Um, and so as they're going out there, the initial thing is when they cancel it and you go real world and you're off the coast of Mexico, what do you think? Drug runners, right? Right. Hey, there's, there's, some, there's an object out there. We got to go check it out. Well, when you get out to the area and you look down and all of a sudden it looks like there's something in the water, you know, that's, that's causing this disturbance under the water. Now it goes from excitement to search and rescue, you know, are we going to have to do this? Mm -hmm. And then the next one is you see something that you've never seen, and you can probably hear it in our voice, you know, the experienced people in the airplane, you know, that are out there, and it goes to, you know, what is that? You know, we haven't been told. We had no idea what we were going at. No one ever gave us this. No one told us. There was no brief, as you know. There was no civic brief said, hey, we've seen these objects out there. Right. Like kind of that you had on the other video that came out. It was the gimbal video where it rolls. Mm -hmm. That had been on the East Coast. There's actually no TAMs out there that these objects were out there. And just to know they're out there because one of the airplanes in a squadron almost hit one. On the East Coast? Yeah, yeah. It went about like 100 feet down the side. They were in section and it went down the side and they just came back and said, and it looks like a, a ball with a cube inside of it. It's how you, like almost like a square that has an aura around it. Hmm. So... At what point do you go, hey, maybe we ought to check this out? Because someone goes, well, maybe it's test. Maybe it's some maybe it's some test of a new system that no one wants them to know. And I said, well, that's great, but they typically don't go test new systems where we're actually doing training with other aircraft because right. if this is some really expensive toy that you're playing with out there and it gets hit by a fighter, well, one, you lose the fighter, possibly kill the air crew, and two, your toy is destroyed. Right. So, you know, normally they do those in areas where – you know, they'll take it out to one of the ranges like Fallon or something like that. And they'll just, you know, they'll have exclusive use of the restricted areas. So, mm -hmm. you know, but taking one to the warning area, which is not a restricted area and allow, you know, because a warning area, anyone can fly through that. You can take a Cessna and go fly through it. All it is is you know, military training in this area, right. you know, you know, proceed at your own caution. Sure. Well, maybe the idea was that being out in the middle of the ocean, they would be away from any prying eyes, which even over Fallon, arguably you've got Highway 50 and some other stuff where people could catch a glimpse if you really didn't want anyone to see it. And maybe they just didn't, you know, check who else was going to be operating in that area at the time and, you know, how it is with government. It's hard enough to coordinate anything, let alone between secretive programs. But I guess I'm just amazed to hear that there's something on the East Coast as well. I mean, why do you think this isn't more publicly spoken. We, society loves movies and conspiracy theories. I'm surprised that this isn't getting more press. You know, I, in my opinion, and it's, it's not just my opinion, uh, Lou, who did the, ran the, the Pentagon program, who and I have talked extensively about this. It's just, there's an aura in the United States that when you see something like this, you know, normally the dude on TV that's talking about, hey, I just saw a UFO. He lives out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And and you, immediately people discredit him. You know, he's he's an alcoholic, or you know, he's kind of crazy, or mm -hmm. this or that. So there's always this perception that it's better just to make fun of it because if it's not real or we just ignore it, then it'll just go away and it's not a big deal. And and I think now there's a point of because you don't know where it's from. I mean, I don't know if it was from China or Russia. And I, I always joke because you know, right after we had that workup. I think it was the Connie was out there working up when the, the sub surfaced in the wake and the whole world was like, it was a big deal. 
you know, and I said, I guess maybe if the Tic Tac would have had like a, you know, a symbol from a foreign country on it and we saw it, then it would have been got paid more serious attention that mm -hmm. there's a technology out there that we can't um, do much about because these things were coming for two weeks at will. And even if you go, what were they doing? Monitoring, watching, observing, prepping the battlefield, you know, you don't know what they're doing. Right. But if you look at it and go, man, for two weeks, these things were showing up. They were coming from areas that we can't do. And then all of a sudden they're disappearing you might want to spend a little time to go, God, what, what is that? What performance? Just, God, just what performance would it cost you to be able to do that? Right. Um, I mean, we're happy right now that SpaceX can land a, a rocket motor <laughs> back on a pad. Well, if you had that technology that we saw, would you really need, you know, make everything like that obsolete? It would make almost every propulsion mechanism we have obsolete. So based on that, in your gut, where do you think this thing came from? I don't think it. I, honestly, I don't, I don't believe the, dev, the technology was developed here. And I mean, like, Earth. on this planet. I'm not. I don't want to. I don't like to talk about aliens because I don't know what it was. You don't even know what. Maybe it was unmanned. I don't know um, because there's also the theories that accelerated so fast that a normal human, you know, a body right. can sustain Fluids. that force. But mm -hmm. uh, I just don't. I don't think. I think if, honestly, if we had that technology, especially now that it's been 14 years mm -hmm. since it happened, honestly, if we had that technology in the last 14 years, something would have leaked out. I, I just, uh, to hide that for that long when it could benefit so many people, right. um, you know, or maybe it wouldn't, you know, I don't know. But if you assume that they've got some revolutionary new propulsion that works by manipulating gravity per se, then uh, I would like to think that th that's a game changer for mankind. Well, so is, I would argue, assuming that, and I'm not challenging you on this, but, you know, you saw what you saw. I didn't. But I have to think, seeing something that you can only explain is coming from somewhere else, I mean, does that change your core belief in our existence and the universe? I mean, what does that do to you? Um, well, for me, I've always kind of believed, uh, and I asked my astrophysics prof when I was at the academy, we were going up to the thing, and I said, hey, you're astrophysics, right? And she said, yeah. I said, do you believe in, like, extraterrestrial life, you know, not from this planet? And she looked at me, and she said, absolutely not. And I said... Really? And you're an astrophysicist? She says, yeah. I said, but we're to this point where the, the universe is infinite. It goes on forever, right? And, you know, we have one galaxy, but we know for a fact that there's more galaxies out there and that there's they're investigating the Goldilocks belts and all this. And that's, this is multiple galaxies. We still haven't even really thoroughly looked at our own galaxy. Mm -hmm. And we're the only ones. That's honestly what you believe. And she said, yeah. I said, doesn't that make it really, like, lonely? Did you, I mean, even even if there was like, you know, kind of Seinfeld, the bizarro world, you know, where maybe there's a whole other world that's just like us, but we're kind of the opposites of right. what we are in real life. I do that in humor, but just because just it makes it easier to talk about. But you go, and that's it? I go, I don't know. I go, because I would say, because, it'd be, you know, if you're religious and you go, hey, God created the earth. And I go, okay, I, I'm totally on board with that because that's what I believe. But who's to say that he only created one? That's right. Argue that point. I mean, God created Earth, but what about what? Maybe He made ten of them just to see, and He made them a little bit different just to see what happened. You know, right? Know. And they all have their own version of the Bible. Well, you're right, and we we have a hubris about our own selves, you That's know, right. as human beings that we are it, we're all that, we're the smartest, we're the best. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be terrible for us to realize that maybe we weren't. You know, we do that with animals. We figure out that you know some of these animals that are out there, the more we study, they're actually really, really intelligent. Right. 
uh, and can do some pretty amazing things that we can't yeah. and we could never do. So. Well, it's a, it's a very deep topic, and certainly I didn't intend to go there, but I appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> I will tell you, I have a college friend who was on one of the last space shuttle flights before it retired, and I visited her as I was delivering an airplane across the country in my last capacity at the depot. And I asked her about her space flight. I said, because she had grown up in the church as well. And, and I said, D- does that change your outlook on anything? And she took it from a slightly different nuanced perspective than apparently your, your professor did. She said, when you consider, like you said, the amount of galaxies and the Goldilocks belts and everything else out, that's out there, but if you just think statistically, it's almost impossible that there's not other life or something. Because if you flip a coin a hundred times, it's virtually impossible that you're not going to get a heads at least once. That's right. Now multiply that. To, I mean, that's obviously a poor example. I'm sure mathematicians will holler at me, but you flip it a thousand times, a million times. And there's how many billions and trillions of galaxies? So I'm not using this podcast as a platform to suggest that, you know, we're going to sit here and tell our listeners that we think there's life outside of the earth. But you know, certainly Hollywood likes to venture into that. And here you are, a very clear-eyed, sober, publicly trained person who knows what you know from that day, and it has left you to believe that there's no other explanation. I mean, is that a fair summary? Oh, very much. You know, I, there's a funny story that ties to I'm going to throw it out here, give my mother-in-law's kudos. But for years, literally, from the time I started flying, my mother-in-law would ask me, have you ever seen a UFO? Have you ever seen a UFO? Yeah, listeners And the answer me. was, no, no, no. So this incident happened. I never told her. I didn't tell them till November of last year. My wife and I had went home, and everyone had kind of left after Thanksgiving, and we're sitting around the table. And I said, hey, I said, I got to tell you guys something, because there's going to be an article that comes out in the New York Times, and it's going to be big, and I'm in it. And they're like, they're, of course, she's looking at me like, oh, God. <laughs> what did you and, do? <laughs> and I said, I said, I chased a UFO. That's literally what I would say. And they go, and she goes, ha, she looks at my father and goes, ha, I told you. She goes, you never told us. I said, no, a matter of fact, when the article hit, my sister, you know, because it was all over Google, my sister's like, why, why didn't you ever tell us? I said, I don't know. I just, it's not something we normally talked about. I never really got into details with my wife or my kids. They kind of knew the story because they would mm-hmm. hear me tell it. But it was really just, like I said, it was a great story when you're hanging out with your friends, having a beer. Yeah. And they go, what's the weirdest thing you saw? And you tell them. And then you go, no way. And right. I go, yeah, that's... That's really what it was until the article came out. How have people responded to you? I know you said you had people, your friends, and here I am chasing you down for that matter. But have you had wackos trying to find you? And like, okay, I've been trying to say this forever. I maybe shouldn't call them wackos. Let me ask this again. (laughs) I mean, have you had people that you have somehow now solidified in their minds what they've known all along? And so they're looking for you to help corroborate that... UFOs are among us or aliens or, I mean, what kind of responses have you received? You know, because you think, all right, you're going to get called a whack job. And uh, there was some good advice my daughter gave me. Don't ever read the comments below the article. Don't Mm -hmm. ever do that. And so I've avoided that most of the time. But for the most part, I've been treated extremely well. The press guys that have talked to me, because I've been very vocal that, you know, as I told them when they first came out with stuff, that when they did the New York Times, I told Helene, because she actually did the story with me, I said, don't mess up the facts. I'll be really upset because it gets twisted. Right. And so the articles that were well done that I can just name right off the top of my head are the New York Times. Uh, the Washington Post article was very well done because Eli had called me multiple times. There was an article in the Sun-Times in London that was extremely well done. And most of that is it wasn't a drive-by, like, 15-minute 
type article. It was a there was an iteration as they wrote the article, and then they to make sure that they had it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that stuff, you know, that helps because if you take there's a lot of people out there that'll look and they'll look at all the articles and they'll find one thing and they'll assume that. You know, maybe you're changing your, you know, you guys are changing your story and it's not. It's just a misinterpretation by the media when they do it. It's not intentional. It's just, it's the way they write it. And I'm a big, you know, don't embellish stuff. Just, just tell it what it is. The story, if you talk to us, the story is the same. It's always been the same. It hasn't changed. It's the same story that we told in 2004 after it happened to the same story that went into the New York Times. Um, Are there people out there that, have tried to track me down. Oh yeah, I'm thinking um, of like the Independence Day character, uh, Dennis oh, Quaid, or was yeah, it Randy uh, Quaid? Randy Quaid, thank you. Uh, who maybe would be a real life guy like that, perhaps trying to find you to pal up with you or something. I mean, anything like that? Um, no. Some of that happened with the Carrier documentary. This one has been. I've gotten letters from literally all around the world. I mean, this thing's global. I just did, I'm waiting for the magazine to show up, but I did an interview for, I, I can't pronounce it, because it's, it's basically the Dutch version of GQ magazine. The article just hit. Uh, uh, We're not going to see a picture of you in your underwear, are we? No, no, no. Oh, no, good. God, you don't want to see you. that right no, now. No, I, I think I saw it on the uh, ship once. I'm uh, scarred for life. <laughs> uh, no, this is, uh, uh, so it's, I mean, it's literally all over. It, but it's funny is because the media has a very short attention span. So when right. it happened, it was like exponential. Well, I remember. It was out of control. Yeah. The news dies really fast. The oh, yeah. old news goes away. Then then rolls in the the documentary people and the TV people. Like right now, I've gone rolling around like four different TV shows because they all want to interview me because it's important. Uh, and I did one with Lou is doing a set with To the Stars on this whole thing. Um, that one I like because the girl that's doing it uh, did uh, Chain of Command, which was on the History Channel, where they actually went around with the generals. Okay. And what really sold me, believe it or not, with her is... Um, uh, Jesse had, we were talking and she goes, Oh yeah, I was out on the bush. Well, you know, Skids was the captain of the bush and, and Kenny was the, the battle group commander when they were doing all the ISIS work. Right. So I wrote Kenny and I said, Hey, you know, these people were out on the boat with you. You know, what can you say about, you know, Jesse? Uh, and he basically wrote back and said, you know, really good group, very professional, did a nice job. So that's important to me because sure. that's a, that's an instant credibility, you know, if I talk to, you know, if Kenny tells me, hey, they're good, they're good, Dave, then I don't, I don't need to ask anyone else, you know, because that's, you know, if, if I get it from a source like that, like if I call you up and go, hey, are these good people? And you go, yeah, you can trust them, they're good. I don't need to call anyone else. I don't need to go do research. Mm-hmm. Your word is more than enough for me to go. It's, you know, how the network works. Oh, yeah. You know? So, you know, when that came out, I said, okay, and they asked me to do it. Um, we'll see how it comes out. All right. Um, but, uh, well, sounds like you're going to be very busy with some various projects. I do want to thank you for adding the fighter pilot podcast to your list of projects for uh, explaining. Well, these your, are fun talking yeah. to guys like you. It's, well, it's, it's good fun. to see each other again. It's been probably almost as many years as when we were on that deployment. Yeah. But what does the future hold for you? I mean, you've got a great gig going here in southern New Hampshire and got a beautiful house and family's all doing well. What's what's the future hold? Honestly, you know, as I tell my wife, my next job is retirement. Yeah, I'm a big family. So, you know, Sherry and I have been married for 30 years, mostly because Sherry's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she puts up with you? <laughs> yeah, she, she puts up with a lot. Okay. Uh, you know, and then... Obviously, my daughter just got married in June. Um, both of my kids are in med school. So wow. that's my future. I mean, okay. uh, you know, hanging out, uh, you know, got a lot of friends. Uh, but to me, you know, 
you know, friends and family are the most important. Sure. And uh, we want to travel around like we lived in Houston. We, mm-hmm. you know, we definitely want to go back down there and see our friends down there. We'd like to get back to California. So it's just, you know, yeah. what do you do? Well, so I think we earlier added it up. You're up to about 45 minutes of fame. It's going to be probably closer to two hours here, Sex, when you get done with, with the documentaries and everything you'll be doing. But any thought of going out on the speaking circuit or? You know, it's funny <laughs> you say that. I've been asked. Uh, I bet. I've been told to, you know, get on the public circuit. I've sure. been told to get an agent. Um, it's not me. I am. You don't like the spotlight? No, nah, you know, it gets old really, really fast yeah. because you realize that there's, you know, 99% of the people are awesome. It's the 1% that wants to pry and get into your life that just, you know, and I am not, I would be, say I'm far from famous. I've just, you know, I like to joke that I'm more like Forrest Gump that just happens to get put in situations <laughs> that's like not like how that guy end up there. Yeah. You know, it was bad enough because Carrier came out. Right. You know, I was never intended to be in that movie ever. You know, it just happened that they were filming two of the pilots in our squadron and a bunch of the troops. Right. So I had to work with Pam like nightly to talk to her. You know, it was never my intent. Matter of fact, my neighbor who was the Oho on the Carrier was actually one of the key players and when the thing actually hit the street, he had a very minor role in it, but he's in it. Uh, and I end up in like seven of the episodes and, you know, an IMDb credit and can join SAG. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I was in Hollywood with a friend of mine. And if you've ever been, you know, like Beverly Hills in Hollywood, but oh, when yeah. you go in some place, everyone looks because I got to kind of right. check out who's coming in the door. They give you right? a second of, do I know That's this person it. or not? That's exactly. And what can he do for me? All right. So yeah. I'd walked in a bar to meet my buddy from college and, and, uh, and everyone, you know, does the, and their heads turn, and then they go back, and I go, what is up with this, man? He goes, I don't get it. He goes, he goes, you know, the sad part is, Dave, he goes, is you have what they want. I go, what do you mean I have what they want? He goes, you have screen time. That's what they want. They want to be on TV. They want sure. that recognition, he goes, and you have it, and you just don't care. I go, honestly, I don't. If that whole thing just got erased and went away, I would be more than happy. Uh, I think my entire family would be more than happy. Um, it was a well done, I think. You know, there's a lot of people that don't agree. Um, but you've seen it. I think it was a pretty realistic depiction of what life on a carrier really is. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't all, uh, as Pam used to say, boys and their toys of guys flying off the deck. But you actually got to see what was going on on the other side. But, yeah, it was never – I was never supposed to be in that thing. And yeah. It was never intended. I found out afterwards. I had no intention when they filmed it they would interview me because they would talk about stuff. And then when it all comes out, they go, oh, you're one of the major characters. And I'm like, because it came out three years after Cruise. I'm like, what do you mean right. one of the major characters? I go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're uh-huh. in there. I'm like, oh. Well, if you had any more ambition to be in the public eye, you would certainly have the various venues to get there. So, hey, you lead the life that makes you satisfied. And if that means uh, being here and doing your thing quietly, that's that's good by us. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm pretty simple. Like, you know, I like to go up to the lake and stand on the shore and fish. There you go. Um, you know, we hike a lot. That's just, you know, I have a good life. You know, God has blessed me. I have I have no complaints. Um, you know, it's probably way better than I probably ever deserved, if you really want the truth. But, you know, it is it is what it is. And, then, you know, these things are, they pop up. So, sure. you know, if, if, it, if people want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. I'm pretty open. Uh, but, you know, I just, I ask for that. You know, when they do these, don't don't prod me because people will find you. Like I had notes in my mailbox oh, at my house. So stalkers. Um, yeah, it's 
and, and we, we can talk we can talk later about some other things. Okay, <laughs> well, well, we'll cut tape here in a second. <laughs> but uh, the last question before we let you go, as always here on the show, is how did you get your call sign? So I think this one sounds like a play on names, but give us the quick background on David Sex Fravor, if you would, please. So it actually, the true story is uh, Kingsville, going on weapons debt. There's a Marine captain, Neck Rollo. If they were naming us all the students, and he said, sexual, sexual Fravor, get it? And everyone thought it was funny. So it actually started off as sexual. And then, remember, you used to use your call sign when you checked into flight. So I was leading <laughs> as a student. You get to lead weapons hops, at least in Kingsville you did. Uh-huh. So I was leading a hop, and I had the Commodore, which is actually how I got my orders changed from S3s to A6s, okay. was flying with us. And uh, he said, you can't use sexual. It's too many. So, so I changed it to sex. It got shortened to sex. So it was the sex flight, check in, one, two, three, four, because at that time, you know, it wasn't politically incorrect to say the word sex. Right. Uh, and normally, you know how it is, you go to your fleet squadron, you get a new one. Right. Well, when I went to my fleet squadron, a bunch of my friends had already went to VA-145, and when they were doing the call sign review, he goes, well, his real call sign, my friend Vic goes, his real call sign, you don't pick me. Yeah. Uh, he goes, his real call sign is sex, and, and then, you know, and then it's kind of tough to top, and then, you know, now you can't even have that call sign because, yeah. you know, all call signs are scrutinized. Which is, you know, it was never bad. It never had a, you know, it, it's not, there was nothing bad. It was just tied to my last name. Right. You know, you know, so, but it, now it was now suggestive, I suppose. But I remember yeah. on that carrier deployment, I want to say it was 05, you had already mentioned Chad Underwood. We name dropped him on episode two with Ferg when we talked about call signs. Didn't you guys have to change his call sign that was painted on the jet from Nuts because Nuts Underwood to like Stun or something? Yeah, yeah, we actually did. <laughs> um, I had it on in, uh, matter of fact, it was on when I was at 122 as an instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, they used that ink to put it on, so it wasn't just paint. You could actually erase it. They had oh, these wow. goofy erasers that could take okay. it off. And uh, my buddy Trim had called me from the East Coast. It was right after Brian Cuny, call sign Lingus, did the press, and it went to Chinfo, and it was, then that's when the call sign police came out. Okay. And I literally got a call going, dude, if your name's on a jet, get it off right now. Because Admiral, Vice Admiral Malone was on the, you know, he was out. He was mad. Right. You know, and then we had the whole dog balls. Incident. On the witch hunt. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> There's some good ones out there. So, but most of them were, you know, you either got it for your name or you got it because you did something stupid. Right. You know, like Boff and our squadron was blew off first flight because that's how he got it. Uh, he just didn't show up. <laughs> yeah, he was late. He was late. And he was flying with me. Oh, and I was the XO at the time. I'm like, where's where the hell's where's he at? And they go, Oh, it's we'll call him Boff, blew off first flight. So nice. um yeah. they're they're always kind of funny. Oh, yes. And you know that. But oh, yes. uh, that's why we did it as episode two. Everybody wants to know about call signs. For mine it was uh that was it. Okay. All right, Sex. Well, thank you, Skipper, for allowing the time for me to come and join you in your beautiful home here and speak about this episode. I know the listeners will find it fascinating. I certainly learned a lot. I want to thank you for your how many years of service? 24 total. 24 between the Marine Corps and the Navy. Thank you for your service. And thanks for your time today. And unless you got any parting shots, I think we can wrap this up. I don't, man. It was great seeing you. You as well. I can't thank you enough for stopping by. You bet. All right, let's get out of here. All right, bye. I'd like to thank Commander Fravor again for taking the time and opening his home to conduct that interview. Greatly appreciated that. And for you, dear listener, I leave this open. I don't know what to tell you. Prior to this interview, I would have told you there is no such thing as UFOs or extraterrestrial activity here in our atmosphere. But after listening to Commander Fravor's story, and I was even on the ship that day, I don't remember why I didn't get more involved with it, but after looking him in the eye and hearing his explanation as you just did, I don't know what to think, so I'll leave it up to you. 
Could be from somewhere else. It could be from another government or maybe our own. There was one thing, though, I wanted to explain further, and that was when he mentioned the subsurfacing in the Connie's wake. That was an Oscar-class submarine from the Russian Navy that surfaced behind the USS Constellation in workups just off the West Coast. So you never know what you may find on workups, apparently. Also, some acronyms that we did not explain fully. ATIP, that is the Advanced Aerospace Threat ID Program, a Pentagon program to look into UFOs. NOTAMs are notices to airmen. Those are just updates that you can check airport, navigational, and other informational type updates for pilots. OHO, that is the Ordnance Handling Officer, a high-ranking ordnanceman on the carrier. And then, of course, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. We will include these acronyms on the glossary page of our website, just as we do for all the new terms we learn every new episode. Well, I want to remind everyone the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We'll see you back here next time, hopefully with sunshine. And until then, you take it easy. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it.